All right, so take your Bibles, Mark chapter 1. We're starting a series in the book of Mark. It's going to take us about 15 or 16 weeks. It's going to lead us right into Easter, um, which is kind of crazy. Um, we're going to go through the book of Mark a chapter at a time. So every week, it's another chapter. So I'm going to encourage you as your pastor, the one who's going to preach these things to you, that every week you find an extensive amount of time in the book of Mark. So in your bulletins, where the little notes section is, the very bottom, it tells you what to read for next week. Well, next week, no surprise, Mark chapter 2. And the following week, hold on to your seats, Mark chapter 3. And what I would encourage you to do is, is spend, read, read that chapter every day. So it's going to take you between four and seven minutes to read a chapter out of the book of Mark. So it's not that long. But I would encourage you to, to jump into it, to read it. If you're a journaler, make a note of the things that stand out to you. If you write in your Bible, make those notes in your Bible. If you're a, a techie, like most of us are now, use YouVersion. Um, there's an app that comes on all of your devices. You can go to their website, Bobble. Bi- Bobble. Don't go to Bobble.org. That's something different. Bible.org. And there you can use some of their resources I just encourage you, every day, read the chapter and just notice the things that stand out to you each time you read it. It's one of the ways that you find out that what Hebrews is saying, that the Word of God is alive, it's quick, it's powerful. Because as you read it on Monday, what stands out to you, it's going to be different than what stands out to you on Friday. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of the living nature of God's Word. And so I want to encourage you to do that. The plan is not to come to Sunday and for me to preach all of Mark chapter 2. Instead, I'm doing the same thing I'm asking you to do. I'm about, about five or six weeks ahead of you. I'm reading Mark chapter six, and I'm or sorry, Mark chapter five right now, uh, and, and just trying to find those things that stand out to me and hop out of me. And I'm praying that God would lead me and direct me. And what will happen is when we get to the week that we do Mark chapter five, I'm going to pick something out of that chapter, and that's what I'm going to preach on. Uh, I say that, and then today I'm going to prove to you that I should not preach an entire chapter by trying to preach the entire chapter one. So I hope you... Um, I don't know, I hope you can listen fast. I don't know how this is going to work, but we'll see what happens. Um, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in introduction material because I, I burned some serious fuel there last service and had to rush at the end. So the book of Mark, I'll just give you some basics. You ready? Book of Mark. Who was it written by? Actually, it was written by John Mark, but Mark counts. That's okay. John Mark is the, his, his official name. We see him come up in the book of Acts. He's related to Barnabas, the fellow who traveled with the Apostle Paul in the missionary journeys. He's also the fellow that as Paul and Barnabas went on their first journey, about halfway through their journey, for some unknown reason, John Mark abandoned them and returned home to Jerusalem. We don't know why. We just know that John Mark had enough. He was done, and he left Paul and Barnabas, and he went back to Jerusalem. Leading to the second missionary journey, as Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go, um, they, they, uh, Barnabas says, hey, I got it. Let's bring John Mark with us. And Paul says, eh-eh. He ditched us once. Why would we bring him again? No, we're not bringing him. And it says in Scripture, in the book of Acts, that it brought Paul and Barnabas to sharp contention. And they were fighting over John Mark and his involvement in that missionary journey. It led to the place where now Paul and Barnabas will no, were no longer a team. Now it was Paul and Silas, and Barnabas went with John Mark. Now fast forward to the end of Paul's life. You get to Philemon, verse 24, and Paul mentions John Mark as a co-worker in the gospel. Something has changed in John Mark, or at least 
Paul's um, perspective of John Mark, where now at one point it was, he's not coming with us. I refuse to go on a trip with him. To he is a worthy coworker in the gospel. In fact, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, hey, send John Mark to me. He is useful to me in ministry. So, so something dramatic has changed in John Mark's life, and Paul took note of it, and now he was an effective minister. So that's the fellow who wrote the book of Mark. Mark was written, um, John Mark's influences, John Mark's resource material, probably came from the Apostle Peter. Uh, the Apostle Peter's preaching, his teaching, even sharing some of the stories that he would have experienced during his time uh, with Jesus. But John Mark was not a disciple. John Mark was, was not a disciple. So that's, that's the introductory material that I'm going to give you. And let me say this, the point of the book, and this is going to be the point of today, it's going to be the point of many of the messages, is found underneath that giant word Mark, which, by the way, if your name is Mark, you get to look at it all the time when you come to church the next 15 weeks, so you're welcome. The point of the book of Mark is it's the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is going to be a year at Uniontown, just giving you a heads up, where we emphasize discipleship more than we have before where we emphasize growth in your personal walk with Jesus more than we have before. You're going to hear a phrase that's going to come up a number of times in 2020, and and that phrase is going to be, we want you to take your next step with Jesus. Because every single one of us has a next step, right? Every single one of us has a next step. It's like education. A first grader has a next step to get to second grade. A junior in college has a next step to get to be a senior, Somebody who's taken master's work in their graduate studies has a next step in order to write their dissertation. Many of these different things are happening in there, so everybody has a next step. You have a next step, and as we study the book of Mark, one of the things that we need to understand is that next step, that growth in Jesus, your your growth in discipleship flows directly out of knowing who Jesus is. Your growing in discipleship flows directly from knowing who Jesus is. So when you know him, you gladly serve him. When you know him, your worship is different. When you know him, you give your life to him. When you know him, you're willing to take him at his word. And so perhaps for you, that's where your struggle is today. Maybe you find yourself, I'm just not able to trust Jesus and take him at his word. I'm just not able to worship the way that I would like to. I'm not able to give my life to him. I'm not able to perhaps The struggle is you know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. And so as we walk through the book of Mark, the goal, the aim, is that each of us walk away taking a next step in knowing Jesus. It's my favorite book of the, uh, my favorite gospel. I want to be clear, it's my favorite gospel. There's a couple of reasons it's my favorite gospel. First of all, this is like the, the, the way I judge all books. It's short. The best books are short books. It's 16 chapters. It might take you between an hour and an hour and a half to sit down and read the entire thing. The other reason I really like the book of Mark is because he writes like I talk. Uh, he, he jumps from topic to topic, no transitions. I, I identify with that. He, he speaks in hyperbole. Everything is big, glorious language. He talks about in verse 5, although the whole Judean countryside came out and all of Jerusalem came to John the Baptist to be baptized. Well, I doubt the entire city of Jerusalem emptied to go to the wilderness, but he's speaking in hyperbole to get his point across. I tend to do that occasionally. He likes action terms. 
It's like watching an action movie when you read the book of Mark. He uses the word immediately more than 40 times in 16 chapters. So you're going to see it. Even this morning, you're going to start giggling to yourself when you read immediately. There it is again. Immediately. There it is again. I mean, he does it a number of times. He also uses this form of speech called duality. Duality is it's basically being redundant. It's saying something in two different ways where you, could, you only had to say it one way, but you, you just happen to talk that way, and I talk like that all the time. He, he says things like, uh, when, in morning when the sun had risen. Okay, well, that's usually when it happens, is in morning, so he uses those things. So you'll start noticing some of those, and, and there'll be a few times that I, I point it out. So, okay, here we go. I'm going to take one more drink of water, and then we're going to fly. You ready? Okay, lid's off, good. Starting off like a bang. Here we go. Verse 1. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths Straight, okay, so what we're talking about here is somebody who's going to come in preparation for the Messiah to arrive, in preparation for the chosen one to come on the scene. When it talks about preparing the way of the Lord in our vernacular, it would be build the road, show up, clear the trees, level the, the, the ground, fill the earth, and then put a road right up on top of it. Build the road, and that's what this one is going to do. And this one, his name, verse 4, we find is John. We refer to him as John the Baptist. So John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was an interesting fellow. That's my commentary, not in Scripture, just so you know. He wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, kind of like fancy colorful pants. He, uh, he ate locusts, and he ate wild honey. Now, 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 what is that all about? So when John the Baptist comes to prepare the way, he is really, anybody that was familiar with the Old Testament would understand that this, this fellow came, and he is dressed like the prophet Elijah. He, it's a description of Elijah in the Old Testament, and this is what he is dressed like. And many, most, believed that Elijah had to return before God would restore the good fortune of Israel. And so here there's, a, there's an excitement that would arise because here is Elijah who has come to prepare the way and he eats this weird stuff, <laughs> locusts and wild honey. However, it's kosher. Um, it follows the Mosaic law, so there's that. Um, if you want to be kosher, you can eat locusts, so good on you. Um, he says, verse 7, one who is more powerful than I, is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says, I can't even untie the shoe of the one that I am preparing the way for. What is he saying? I mean, we, we get the idea. In that culture, the, the, the person who held the lowest position in the, 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 um, the slaves of the family, the one who was the lowest of low in the slaves, would be the one who, when a guest arrived at the home, would stoop down, untie the sandals, remove the sandal from the person's foot, and then wash their feet. It was pretty disgusting. 
It's not exactly the job that people clamored for. It was the one that was given to the one of the the lowest esteem. And and John the Baptist says, this one that is coming, he is so high and lifted up. He is so mighty that I'm not even on the scale high enough that I would be willing to touch his sandal because he is so great and I am so not. All right, so here we go. Now it gets interesting. In those days, Jesus, verse 9 came from Nazareth in Galilee, was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So here is this moment. Jesus comes. John the Baptist, who is baptizing other people, Jesus enters into the water. John the Baptist, he baptizes Jesus. As he brings Jesus out of the water, it says the heavens tear open. There's a visual for you, right? I don't know about you, when we were, our kids were little, we could be driving around, it would be an overcast day, pretty cloudy. But in the distance, one of the, the, the clouds would break open just enough and the, the rays of sun would come through that hole. You'd be like, this really cool sunlight would be coming down, and the kids would be like, oh, Jesus is coming back. Okay, I don't think that's one of the signs, but that's okay. Um, <clears throat> and that's kind of the idea. We think, oh, that's the heavens parted. That's how it's put it in, in our kids' cartoon books. That's the way we see it in, in, in the, the, the animated series that we watch when Jesus is baptized. The, the clouds parted. But no, this says, the heavens tore open. What, what, what does that mean? Well, when heaven tears open, the expectation is that God is about to speak or act. You see that in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. If only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that mountains would quake at your presence. You see it in Ezekiel chapter 1. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. The, the idea is that the heavens are torn open, and now God is about to speak. God is about to act, and that is exactly what we see. But the next thing that happens is it says that the, the Holy Spirit descended from heaven like a dove. What in the world is going on there? Well, um, conservatively speaking, there are 16 different interpretations of what the dove is meant to represent. Uh, the, it runs the, the gamut from... Uh, it represents Israel. It, it's a picture of God from um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it talks about him hovering over the earth. It's a picture of the dove that Noah sent out and then that returned and, and, and talked about how God had given them gracious deliverance through this tragedy. It also has the option that it's just a common bird. So, so we really don't know what that represents other than this. We know from Isaiah chapter 11 that when the chosen one comes on the scene, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years earlier that when the one shows up, there will be a a demonstration of the approval, of the affirmation, of the identity and the authority of this one when the Spirit of the Lord comes to rest upon him. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. That leads to the next part where this audible voice from heaven comes from the torn sky and you hear the voice of God say, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. It's an allusion to Genesis chapter 22 where it talks about Abraham being called by God to sacrifice his son, his only son, his only son Isaac, who he loved. It's the same terminology. This is 
God's Son, His only Son, Jesus, who He loves. And I'm pleased with Him. So not only do you get the affirmation of the authority and the identity of Jesus Christ as being the one when the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and rests upon His shoulder, but you get the affirmation of the authority and the identity of Jesus Christ as being one when the very voice of God the Father is heard. There's something about Jesus, and it's different than everybody else, and it's seen in His baptism. Let's keep going. Verse 12. Verse 12. Immediately the Spirit drove Him into the wilderness, he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild a- the wild animals and the angels were serving him. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of details here because Mark doesn't. So when Mark writes about the temptation of Jesus, he, he actually limits his information on purpose. And so uh, if you want more information on the temptation of Jesus, you can go to the Gospel of Matthew, which kind of goes through and delineates how Satan tempted Jesus and how Jesus responded. But what Mark is trying to communicate to us in this moment is that behind the scenes, something is going on. Something is going on behind the scenes. When when Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan is relentlessly going after him, going after him, going after him, and Jesus himself is able to rebuke Satan and to to achieve um, sinful perfection, sinless, sorry, get that right, sinless perfection, when he uh, leaves the wilderness because he didn't fall for the temptation of, of Satan in his life. And so what you, you have is something is going on there. And, and, and what we take away from that is Jesus won that battle. Not a lot more information, but that's intentional because Mark wants to get to the next part of his story. Look at verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee and he proclaimed the good news of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And as he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them. I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Now going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately Jesus called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. So a couple of misnomers we got to get out of our head. Uh, these disciples, before becoming disciples, weren't lazy men. It wasn't like they went fishing to avoid the chores that were waiting for them at home. Okay? They were fishermen by trade. These were hardworking businessmen who put in hour upon hour upon hour of manual labor to make ends meet. You look at the situation with Zebedee. They, they, they had employees. So that means they were, they were men of some level of means. So while they are working, while they are mending their nets, while they are actively fishing, Jesus comes along the side of the, of the boat and he says, hey, follow me. And they leave their nets right where they are. The sons of Zebedee actually walk away from the boat that their daddy is working on and they're like, we're out, good luck with the employees, and they take off to follow Jesus. I mean, this is a significant moment, so the question has to be asked, what caused these men to respond like this? What what, what led them to the point that they would leave behind their business, they would leave behind their family, they would leave behind any hope of financial gain from their employment? What, What led to this? Well, Mark is very succinct in his description. He says all that led to it was Jesus walking by them and saying, follow me. And they were willing to lay down their nets 
and pursue Jesus. Why? Because he had authority. And when he spoke, somehow they recognized it. In fact, it refers similarly to Psalm 33 in the act of God in creation. When God spoke, it came into being. When he commanded, it came into existence. He didn't have to do any magic tricks. He didn't have to entertain anybody. He just simply spoke it. But because he is the one, because he is the one with authority and with power, they were willing to leave everything to follow him. And that's just the beginning. Look at verse 21. Jesus and the disciples that he has called at this point go into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like the scribes. See, here Jesus enters one of the local assemblies, one of the local synagogues, and he begins to teach. And it's not like he walked in and was like, okay, I'm taking over. Give me the microphone, give me the pulpit, I'm going to preach. Uh, at this time in the synagogues, the rabbis would invite teachers as they came into the synagogue to be the ones who would share the message that day. They would read a portion of the law, and then they would explain it. Now, normally what would happen, a scribe would get up, and he would, they were legal experts in the law, and they would read the law, and then they would begin to quote other rabbis and other scribes and their take on the passage. And so it was similar to going to a, a hearing and having a lawyer get up and begin to quote case law where they say, okay, so according to Williamson versus Virginia in 1940, that ruling was this, so therefore this ruling should be that. And, and so it sounded kind of, you know, that's not really all that enthusiastic, all that exciting. But when Jesus came in, read the law, began to teach on the law, he didn't do it like the scribes, he didn't quote other people, he just began to teach as one who had great authority because he's the one that wrote it. He was an expert in it. He could share things that no one else could. And the people noticed. And it says in verse 22 that they were astonished because of the authority that he taught with. Verse 23, just then, a man with an unclean spirit was in that synagogue. And he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Okay, let's, let's do a little bit of a step out to the side here and answer a question. How does the demon know who Jesus is? I mean, you, you have this come up a number of different times, even in the book of Mark. You have it in the Gospels all over the place where, where Jesus will interact with someone who is demon-possessed, and the demon immediately knows who, who, who this one is that is standing before them. And here the demon says, I know who you are. You're Jesus of Nazareth. You're the, the Holy One of God. How did the demons recognize who Jesus was? Well, you have to remember, before the fall of Lucifer, all of the angelic beings, including Lucifer, were serving and worshiping the great triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Until that moment that Lucifer decided he was going to rebel against God because he wanted to be God, he was cast out of heaven. Lucifer, Satan himself, was cast out of heaven. And when he was cast out of heaven, so were a third of the angels who had joined him in their rebellion against God. 
So those third of the angels were cast out of heaven. Here are these demons who had spent for, for eternity before that worshiping Jesus Christ in heaven, bowing at his throne, serving him, and now all of a sudden in the synagogue, here he stands before the demon. And the demon says, Oh, I know you. Why are you here? Well, you threw us out of heaven. Now what? Jesus speaks and rebukes him, verse 25, and says, You be silent. We're not having this conversation. You come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. And they were all amazed. And they began to ask each other, What is this? This new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. There's something different. This Jesus has authority that no one else has. You see it in his teaching. You see it in his ability to speak to the the, the unclean spirits and have them flee. You see it again. Look at verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law, pause, Simon is Peter. Catholic Church teaches that Peter was the first pope. Peter was married. Just point that out. Don't want that gloss over that. Got got that, right? All right, let's just keep going. Simon's mother-in-law, verse 30, was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. Simon's mother-in-law is sick. Anybody been sick this week? Anybody? Anybody at all? Okay, good. Your turn's coming next week, so praise the Lord. Just prepare. Um, everybody, everybody gets it. Um, when it talks about her having a fever, that word actually is a form of the verb to burn. She's not feeling well. She is burning up with fever, and she was in bed. Verse 31, so Jesus went to her. He took her by the hand, and he raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. Jesus approaches her, takes her by the hand, pulls her up, and fever's gone. And and, and then she begins to serve them immediately. And I don't know about you, that's not how I recover from a fever. I recover from a fever like, maybe I'll take a shower, probably not. I'm going to sit and relax, get a little extra rest. No, no, no. She was fever, in bed, unable to help. Jesus touches her. She is now completely healed, completely better. It wasn't a gradual healing. It was an immediate, genuine healing where she was better immediately. That's the way Jesus heals. Verse 32. Then evening came after the sun had set. They brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door. Tells you how many sick and demon-possessed people lived in that town. There's a key word here in verse 34. He healed Many who were sick with various diseases. And he drove out many demons. It doesn't say he healed them all. He doesn't say he drove out all of them. It says he healed many and he drove out many. He wouldn't permit the demons to speak 
because they knew him. So what's happening here is he's he's healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and now he is in the home, and they keep on bringing him sick and demon-possessed people. And as they bring him, he keeps on healing them until he stopped. This isn't doctors without borders. This is something that people have never seen and haven't seen since. This is something completely different. It's just this constant this, this constant flow of sick and demon-possessed, and, and Jesus is, is doing his healing work. He is working miracles. He is casting out demons, and they just keep coming, and they just keep coming, and they just keep coming until they stop. Verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, went out, made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Don't, let, let's not skip this. In the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the frenzy, with all of his power and authority on display, with the people continuing to line up at the door as he continued to heal them, as he continued to cast out demons, in the middle of all of that, he stops and he escapes to spend time praying. If Jesus did that, how much more should we? The disciples finally find him. Look at verse 36. You get the idea of what is happening behind the scenes that Mark actually doesn't write. Simon and his companions searched for him. That word searched means hunted for him. And when they found him, they said, I hate this phrase, everyone is looking for you. I don't know about you. Somebody says that to me and I can instantly feel my soul deflate. Everybody's looking for you. That is never good news. It's not like they're like, everybody's looking for you. They all want to give you $100. That is not how it works. Everybody's looking for you. And Peter is right. Jesus was on a high of popularity. He'd been experiencing incredible success. He was known and becoming more known. And, and, and Peter wasn't wrong. I mean, if this, this whole thing with Jesus was about success, if it was about popularity, if it was about getting his name known and published and, and great growth of crowds, the worst possible thing Jesus could have done was disappear in the middle of that. That's a marketing nightmare. Now, Jesus should have been down there and, and, and healing people and casting out demons and blessing babies and doing all these other things. That, that's what he, be a good Messiah and get back down there. And Jesus says, let's go to the neighboring villages so I can preach there too. Because that's why I've come. See, Jesus says that it's not about the healing ministry. He didn't heal everyone that needed healing. We'll talk about that in a moment. It wasn't about him being a, a, a miracle worker. He nurtured his relationship with his father in order to maintain his focus. And if Jesus did that, shouldn't we? I mean, we, we tend to avoid that time where we go alone. I'm not talking about your daily devotions. Man, do your daily devotions. You should be in the Word, reading the Word every day, because that's how God speaks to you. You should be doing that, but, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the, the regular and planned and intentional time to escape from everything, where you leave the phone behind, you leave the email behind, you leave people behind, you leave all the things that give you a false sense of identity behind, and instead you sit at the feet of God. Allow yourself to be 
focused. Allow God to work your, 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 your scope in and get sighted in on exactly what you're supposed to do. But we tend to avoid that. We avoid that because at the end of that day, you have nothing to show for what you did. What'd you do today? Nothing? Did you answer any emails? No, I got a lot more though. Didn't return phone calls. Didn't, no, I did, did nothing. So, so we're uncomfortable with that. We're uncomfortable with the idea that God in that time may actually point out a few areas in our life that he's not exactly pleased with. But without that time, how can you possibly stay on task? See, as Jesus spent time with the Father, the Father sharpened his focus. He, he renewed his vision. He made sure he understood the task. And people, I'm going to tell you, it's about to get a little offensive in here, so buckle up. Okay, One of the things that we need to do as a church leadership is to protect this church from the message of Jesus becoming hijacked. Because what has happened in this church and in other churches, and I'm not, it's not, okay, if you're a guest with us, I'm not like preaching against somebody and they're sitting in the corner like, don't make eye contact. But this is true about the universal church. It's true about the church in America. Is people have come into the church and hijacked the message of who Jesus is. You know who Jesus is? Jesus is the one who wanted to do acts of service and build community and assist the poor. That's, that's all that Jesus was about. That's hijacking the message of Jesus. Jesus escaped with his father, and he came back out of that time with his father and said, I have got to preach the gospel. I mean, those other things are good, but they're all byproducts. Those other things are how you love people. You can't possibly love others best if you don't love God most. So the message of Jesus, if it's hijacked and it becomes about acts of service and community and assisting the poor and the gospel gets left out, then all you're doing is giving them incomplete redemption. You're redeeming the outside while the inside rots away. We must never drop the gospel it's about intentionally sharing the gospel of Jesus. And, the, and, and the, the, the vehicle we use is relationships. We build relationships so they might hear the good news of the gospel of Christ. We serve them so they understand that we're not all talk. We're actually action as well. We can't let people come in and hijack the message of the church and redefine who Jesus is. We're going to read Mark and we're going to see who Jesus is. Jesus is one who said, no, it will not be about this miracle working. It will not be about all the healing and the casting out of demons. It will be about preaching the good news of how a person can be reconciled to God. We will not allow our message to become about morality. Uh, it's not, that's not the message of Jesus. Be a good person. Don't smoke. Don't vape. Don't hang out with people who drink too much. That's not the message of Jesus. It's about knowing him, loving him, more than you know and love anyone or anything else and allowing him to change you, to create in you a new heart, to remake you. That's the message of Jesus. And it's certainly not about Jesus making much of you. It's not about Jesus answering your commands that are disguised as prayer requests. It's not you holding Jesus hostage saying, I will serve you if you do this. Let me, let me show you what that looks like in this last snapshot of Mark chapter 1, verse 39. And Jesus went into all Galilee. He was preaching in their synagogues. He was driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him. And on his knees he begged him, if you are willing, 
you can make me clean. Leprosy is the Ebola of the ancient world. If you get Ebola, you're isolated. No one visits. No one comes near you. There is no cure. And if for some reason you do end up getting a little bit better, people still avoid you. Leprosy is a disease that affects the nerve system. And it affects the nerve system to the point that the, the person who has it can no longer feel pain. And they experience infection super easy within their, their muscle tissue. And it can lead to the degeneration of tissues and organs and eventually limbs deformed to the point where they can fall off. There was no cure for leprosy. And, and I want to tell you, although that sounds horrible and horrific, it's more than physical. Because these people who had leprosy had no life. They were a total outcast from all of society. Look, look how Leviticus ex- describes how a person with leprosy is supposed to behave. Leviticus 13, the person who has a case of leprosy is to, to have his clothes torn and his hair hanging loose. And he must cover his mouth wherever he goes and cry out, unclean, unclean. He'll remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He must live alone in a place outside of the camp. See, it's not just a physical infirmity. This is a a full-on affecting every area of your life. This person had to be a visible and an audible warning to everyone around them that they were coming into the area. They weren't allowed any social interaction. Think about that. The, The center of life at this time was worship at the temple, but they weren't allowed to be there. And here this leper, I mean, this is, this is a brave man, because this leper breaks the law by approaching Jesus. He sees Jesus, he's heard of Jesus, he's watched his authority, he's seen his power demonstrated, and he makes his way to Jesus, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was easy for him to clear a crowd, so they'd get out of his way and he'd make his way to Jesus. And he falls down before Jesus and he says, if you are willing, you could make me clean. The leper says is, You could heal me. The question is, will you? Folks, faith does not heal you. God does. God's healing or authority or power is not limited by your lack of faith. Look at the disciples. How many things did did Jesus do in spite of their lack of faith? The source of healing for this leper wasn't his faith. It was the will of Jesus. That the reality that that Jesus has authority over sickness and death and healing and protecting, it doesn't mandate that Jesus behaves the way we want him to. There's a false gospel out there. False gospel is no gospel because it doesn't bring hope. It brings a lie. And people cling to the lie and then they're damned. I'm not always comfortable, I'm not apologizing. I'm not always comfortable naming names. I'm not naming any of you so you can relax. <laughs> Everybody's like, don't look at them. Um, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable naming names. 
But in reality, as your pastor, my responsibility is to shepherd sheep. And you're sheep. And when there's a wolf, I got to warn you. And you may not like it, but the reality is Joel Osteen is a wolf. I want to read a quote to you. Maybe Alzheimer's disease runs in your family genes, but don't succumb to it. Instead, you just say every day, my mind is alert, I have clarity of thought, I have a good memory, every cell in my body is increasing and getting healthier. And here's the key phrase. If you will rise up in your authority, you can be the one to put a stop to the negative things in your family line. Start boldly declaring, God is restoring health unto me, and I'm getting better every day in every way. That's Joel Osteen. Guys, the leper had a better understanding of who Jesus is than Joel Osteen does. The leper approached Jesus and says, listen, if you would, if you desire, I know you can, then you can give me healing, but it's completely up to you. I can't speak it into existence. That is a lie, a damnable lie from hell that is deceiving millions of people today. And it has, in fact, infected our church. Now, I haven't gotten a book from Joel Osteen on Christmas. Thank you. But there are many within this place. And I believe because he mixes just enough truth, just enough worm on the hook. What's amazing is the leper comes to Jesus and says, listen, Jesus, if you, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, filled with compassion, touches the leper. Hey, he wrote the law. He can break it. And says, I am willing. And immediately the leprosy left him. Who is this? Who is this? So let me, let me just go back to the healing. Jesus, Jesus overcame sin on the cross. and He defeated death and the grave. So you don't need to feel le- fear leprosy. You don't need to fear cancer. You don't need to fear Alzheimer's. You don't need to fear death. So when you hear that Jesus has authority over disease, don't take that to mean that as a Christian you will be free from disease. Take that to mean that because Jesus has authority over disease, you have hope. You have joy. You have strength that can surpass the worst trials and the worst diseases in the world. Who is this? Who is this that his baptism, the voice of God the Father spoke and gave him approval and verified who he said he was? Who is this that in the temptation in the wilderness he overcame Satan? Who is this that when he called men to follow him, they left everything willingly to get behind him? Who is this that taught the law with authority? Who is this that speaks and demons flee? Who is this that heals sickness? Who, who heals the possessed? Who heals the leper? Who is this that when he speaks, it happens? Who is this in, in chapter 4 that says, shh, and the wind and the waves obey him? Who is it in chapter 5 that says, little girl, get up, and the 12-year-old girl rises from the dead? Who is it in chapter 7 that says, open, and the ears of the man who has been deaf forever open? Who is it in chapter 15 that cries out and the veil tears from top to bottom? It's the one. 
It's the one with authority and power, and there is no other. And his name is Jesus. And if you know who Jesus is, it's going to further your discipleship. It's going to cause you to continue to grow in him. It's going to make your worship sweeter. It's going to make your willingness to yield to him a whole lot easier. Because you know he's the one. This is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Father, thank you that you have not only loved us, but Father, you have spoken truth to us in, at times that honestly we wouldn't have asked for truth. But because of your graciousness to us, you demonstrate true love by speaking it. Now, Father, I pray that you would continue to protect your, your children. I know there are people here who, who don't see what's so wrong with just a little bit of a Joel Osteen book or all these different things. God, I know that. But God, I ask you to protect them from the error that is sown into those things. Lord, protect us. Protect me from arrogance. Protect our church from thinking we have all the answers when in fact we do not. But we know who does. And it's you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for what it is that he's done for us. Thank you for the way he served us. For it's in his good name I pray. Amen.